Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and here is a Waywards mini-episode. I want to talk a little bit today about responsibility for writing. By that I mean the authorship and authority question, which I've brought up a couple of different times in the past, ever since looking at Fowles and the Frith and researching the history of the authorship idea, I've been intrigued by how so many writers wanted to claim authorship and yet evade responsibility. It was a clever and delicate position back then, one that could get you in trouble with the church. Today, though, it seems responsibility for one's writing is limited to social media scandals. At one level, of course, as a writer, I always have understood myself to be responsible for the words I've used. It's a kind of an ethical choice I carry. But I don't doubt for a moment that I should be held accountable for those words. Consider historically how this accountability is both prized and despised. There is the position that I, as the writer, am elevated by the text. Milton understood this, Dante, Blake... They wanted to imitate the classic works that were there before them, to call upon them, but also to surpass them in some way, to go beyond them, to become superior to them. Later, ekphrastically, authors would respond to other works. They would update them, enter into a discourse with them as equals. And, as we saw with some writers, they would compose themselves as authors. I can create myself as a quasi-fictional image. Milton, larger than life. Dante, larger than life. We look at them now as characters like, what have they done? What have they created? They're amazing. That is partly their own craft, to take on the role of authority by becoming enormous. On the other hand, these same writers did not totally want responsibility for their work, And we see this in some of their techniques. For instance, writers would call upon the muses or gods, asking for their inspiration in order to become this larger than life. Well, if I fail, it's because the muse was not with me. Or they would lean upon these past works and borrow images and ideas and themes and plot lines from works that had gone before, so they did not have to exert themselves in originality or creativity. That was seen in the past as virtue. Or as humble narrators, they would call for forgiveness. Oh, I know my work will not be as strong as the works before it. We also know that that composition of the author idea of fictionalizing yourself as an author can become problematic if you become too invisible as an author, if we cannot find the authentic author of a text. Uh, In some cases, we tend to become destructionists, and we erase the author completely. We say Shakespeare didn't exist, Homer did not exist, or there is a fable of a writer but not the real writer there to assume authority or to even be responsible. The easiest method that writers use to evade responsibility, though, is to say, well, I didn't say it. My character did, or my narrator or speaker did. It wasn't me. It was just I was just having someone voice an idea. There is a difference between responsibility and accountability. 
One may argue that they are not responsible for the ideas of a text. My character said it, or even that its success is humbly not merited. I was inspired, that's all. Responsibility might be argued in this context as a personal and ethical consideration. Authors, wary of the risk inherent in the creation of ideas, may wish to absolve themselves of responsibility. I'm thinking here of a moment early in the Inferno, where Dante meets the lovers Paolo and Francesca, who meet their doom in hell for their passions. They tell Dante the pilgrim that they first kissed after reading the story of Lancelot. Dante faints. I'm not the only one who wonders if the poet lost consciousness not merely for what seems an unjust punishment and suffering, but for the role that writers of romances, much like Dante himself, play in that eternal suffering. But whatever we say of responsibility, one cannot escape accountability. This is perhaps a more social phenomenon, that we as writers or publishers are agents for the publication or installment of a work in a particular context. Thus, a museum is accountable to the public it serves for its installation of provocative artists. One can hardly display a Serrano or a Maplethorpe without expecting to be held accountable for that decision. When Augustin Burroughs wrote Running with Scissors, which he says now is only loosely based on his life and not really a memoir, that does not mean he, nor St. Martin's Press, is not accountable to the families and characters in the book who served as inspiration, real or fictional. I draw a distinction between these two terms, at least in part, because of so many recent scandals around where writers attempt to absolve themselves from, first, legal problems for their words, second, responsibility for what they write. Now, we, as communities of readers, have our own choice whether and how to hold writers or musicians or corporations or politicians or whoever accountable for what they choose to write in our communities. Words carry weight. They have impact. They affect others. We can hope that something we compose never triggers a reader into a reprehensible or tragic act. We may, in the end, find that the community does not hold us responsible for that act, that the causes or fault for the tragedy are primarily elsewhere. But we cannot step away from the influence of the words and claim somehow that in no way should we inquire about it. Accountability, at its best, is a calling for inquiry into the health of the discursive spaces we inhabit. In other words, let's ask questions about the kind of language spaces we want and note that writers shape those spaces. Notice, too, how I'm separating accountability from guilt. That word comes prepackaged with a lot of connotations we don't have time to address here, whether they are legal or spiritual or ethical, etc., though that question, too, is important. My accountability can be a positive influence. And notice, too, that I'm also, quite specifically, separating this discussion from the status of the writer as living or dead. This last distinction is perhaps easiest to see why the separation between responsibility and accountability is so important. Suppose a writer from the distant past offers a misogynistic view. He despises the notion of seeing women as humanly equal. Now, we may research into the author's life, find that the social circumstances are such that what was written is, sadly, entirely expected. The writer was a product of cultural circumstances, we suggest. 
or even that the particular life circumstances of the writer influenced the offensive opinion. Suddenly we have a debate, too too common in social media, of whether or not the author should be held responsible, whether they are guilty of A or B, and, of course, whether, as a consequence, we should continue to read them. We are concerned about how conscious they were of today's sin. And, in a fallacy we call presentism, we sometimes judge their morality based upon our own current value system. The problem, in my view, is not whether we ultimately choose to keep or excise a work in our cultural consciousness, though you will find that I often err on the side of preservation of ideas, no matter how reprehensible, go figure. No, that's not the issue. The issue is upon what basis we make such a decision. If we're reasoning whether or not a writer is responsible, we're coming at the question, I think, from the wrong direction. Instead, if we look at the question of accountability, we can hold a writer accountable for their words, and much more importantly, hold ourselves accountable for the current installation of them. Think less about whether or not Lovecraft's racist ideology personally disqualifies him from the culture, but instead whether or not we should read him ourselves, and whether or not we should spend our time creating multiple documentaries of his life and celebrating his horror in classic editions. What does such an installation of Lovecraft's biography do to our acceptance of that racism implicitly? Or, consider it in terms of the teaching of books— because remember, what we call a canon of literature has historically always been a question of what books best teach acceptable behaviors. In many schools right now, there is a healthy discussion of whether or not a work like To Kill a Mockingbird should be included in the classroom. It is a simple and even flippant thing to say, well, yes, it's racially offensive at some points, but this was how it was back then in the southern United States. Or... Uh, Harper Lee was actually quite progressive at the time and is arguing in the novel that racism is bad, thus ignoring that her other methods for doing so themselves offend our contemporary understanding of race. Others apologized to the text on behalf of sentiment and nostalgia or a romanticized love of Gregory Peck, who played the main character in the film version. Instead, however, many schools are reasoning that continuing to teach such a book institutionalizes those antiquated attitudes and approaches and contributes to the systemic racism which perhaps permeates parts of our public school education. Harper Lee is a fine writer. The book well exposes elements of the American South and its thinking through a well-written young narrator. But really, are there no better books that better reflect our current thinking and are also well-written? In other words, Classroom teachers are holding themselves accountable for the words in their classrooms, whether or not we ultimately rule that Harper Lee is responsible for them. And it will be true, and history has proven for everyone ever in existence, that we may all be held accountable for our own words after our deaths. Okay, so what is all this talk about responsibility and accountability, and why are we talking about it now? Well... Coming up is a discussion of a fairly famous poem by Andrew Marvel that is, at its kindest, rather sexist to our current values, and I wish to discuss a bit of technique that authors have and still do use to attempt to escape both responsibility and accountability. Now, I've already listed several methods which writers use to dodge a bit of that responsibility. 
To be clear, this is not the only reason these techniques are used, but the effect they have in common is the abdication of that responsibility. For instance, we said they call upon the muses, where they take the responsibility and you offset it. Homer did it this way. Tell me, muse, of the man of many ways, who was driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Or the author leans upon the past, thus again, offsetting that responsibility. Dante writes the Inferno based on his desire to compose epic poetry and the stories of his Catholic country of Italy. And, as but one example, Larry Niven writes his novel called Inferno, based, of course, on Dante's version. Some authors offer a humble narrative call for forgiveness, again, offsetting that responsibility for the words, but also virtue signaling of humility. Shakespeare, in one of many examples, has Prospero of the Tempest say, But release from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. In other words, we're sorry. We we just wanted to please you and make you happy on this stage. We didn't mean to, you know, offend you if it happened, but, you know, we appreciate some applause if you thought we were we did okay. Now, composing authors, creating public images of authors, can also be a slippage, an invisibility of the real author. Do we really know Stan Lee? We've learned some sad things after his death. So starstruck have we been over the Marvel Universe. J.D. Salinger, Lewis Carroll, and whether or not Ayn Rand was really a fan of the television show Charlie's Angels. These may or may not be important, but what is important is that these authors went out of their way to create themselves as characters instead of real people. And, of course, the easiest method. I didn't say it. My character did. It's this last method I wish to describe a bit more. Now, we can see easily what happens when we place a controversial but perhaps semi-reasonable idea in the mouth of a villain or socially isolated character. We as readers experience the idea without being threatened by it. It's bad, obviously. Even so... The meme, Thanos was right, is still fairly popular, even though he advocated the extermination of one half of all sentient creatures in the Marvel Universe. Or the misanthropic alienation of Holden Caulfield in Catcher of the Rye. The anti-hero of that story becomes a kind of emblem for younger readers of the time, resistant to the mindless routines of culture. In each case, we don't completely reject the idea, do we? We consider it. And the author, handily, is not responsible for advocating for the ideas. But remember, too, that we can build in an entirely new level of distance between the writer and the ideas spoken by another, and that is the creation of another character, the narrator or speaker. Now let's quickly establish this first as an absolute. The author is not the narrator of a novel, nor the speaker of a poem. Start with that position as the default. We may find a few cases where this is almost true, that they are the same, but I want us as readers to work from the other direction, so we don't get lazy and assume it. Dante wanders around the creations of God, but Dante the wandering pilgrim character and Dante the poet writing about that pilgrim are not the same, even though they share a name, a lifetime of similar acquaintances and events, etc. The poet who falls asleep and dreams of Xanadu is not Coleridge, 
even though the editorial footnotes often say so. Now this is important for a few reasons. It allows us to see the work and its words from two perspectives, as the character and as the writer. It demands that we examine the narrator or speaker as a character in the work. Notice how important it was to Chopin's story of an hour when we realized that the narrator did not share the sincerity of Louise Millard's vision. It was important in Fowls and the Frith when we did not even have a specific author to use, so we only had the speaker of the poem as a character. It was clearly important to Adichie's Tomorrow is Too Far when we see that the narrator of the story is divided into a younger and older self, each of these different from Chimamanda Adichie herself. And it is important in a virtual Van Gogh when we see that the creator of the paintings we admire is clearly a different persona than the team of producers who reassembled his work with a different intention. Van Gogh becomes a character composed by them. In my experience, this is always easier for us to see in novels and short stories than it is in poetry, where so much of verse is written in first person that we presume that the speaker and the author are the same. Now, if you are a writer of poetry, by the way, ask yourself how conscious you are of this persona you unconsciously create when you begin the poem. Is the speaker of the poem always you, exactly? Which version of you? Which aspect of you? At what age? In what mood? Do you see what I mean by a mismatch between the total author and the speaker created? Now imagine that the speaker of the poem is a character completely different from the author. Langston Hughes writes the poem Cross about a speaker who is of mixed race. Hughes was not. Emily Dickinson writes as a male in her poem There's Been a Death in the Opposite House. In Sylvia Plath's Mirror, the speaker is, um, an object. In Bull's Song by Margaret Atwood, the speaker is a bull. The point is, we must not assume that the two are the same, and that once we understand this, we can start to understand that there is a whole new way to experience irony, and thus meaning. Remember, irony is about perception, limited perception, how one character or another sees or understands less than others, or less than the author, or less than we as readers. This ironic perceiver is ignorant to something, biased in something, flawed in some way, in need of growth. And this ignorance is crafted into that speaker character by the writer. If we miss this idea, think now about the idea of responsibility and accountability. If we misread the poem or story and believe that the flawed character is actually speaking the same feelings as the writer... Oh, that's our bad, as a reading community, and teachers in that community, not as an author. More than, we stop accepting the narrator's or speaker's views at face value. We start to look into them to understand better where their ideas are coming from, who or what that less limited perceiver is. Do we understand something that the speaker does not? Why is that limitation of the speaker significant to the theme of the work? When William Blake writes The Tiger... What do we know of that speaker who asks, Tiger, tiger, burning bright, in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? 
It's fairly easy for us to see, even in the first stanza, that Blake is asking how a god could create an evil and scary thing like a tiger. It's a fairly old philosophical question. How can a god who's supposed to be all good allow evil to exist in the world? Most readers of the poem stop with this idea. They say, oh, that's a good question. What is this all about? And then they maybe walk away from the poem with this, you know, pretty often spoken, deep thought. Consider now what we may know of the speaker, who is not Blake. Let's challenge the speaker for a minute. Are they missing something in the argument? Is there a logic or issue they do not see? What does the speaker likely feel as a result of this question? And is that feeling justified? Is there some place less conflicted that they need to reach, to grow to? Why would Blake have a character who is in this way conflicted? It's possible that Blake was concerned about this question too, yes, but I want to suggest that this lazy reader assumption, one that I held for many years, is a weakness in our reading. Who is this speaker who, like Job before him, challenges God? Is that what's going on here? Or is he honestly expecting an answer? What happens if he gets one? In his collection, Auguries of Innocence, Blake writes, The questioner who sits so sly shall never know how to reply. He who replies to words of doubt doth put the light of knowledge out. Knowledge for Blake, the ultimate of which is imagination, is dulled by pessimistic questions, simple and direct answers. We must not be too quick with either, though the speaker of this short poem, The Tiger, offers us just this. Short question, one example, that demands an account for all of creation. One does not question God quite so smugly. The question of how to account for evil as posed here is not Blake's question. If anything, Blake understands the failure of the question, and if we were to look at this at greater length, the much larger question implicit in that. But notice here that from this perspective, the speaker as ironic perceiver and not author, the meaning of the poem is nearly reversed. This is part of that power of irony I spoke of in earlier episodes, such as 1.2, The Story of an Hour. Let's hang on to this idea as we consider how we hold writers and their words responsible. And let's consider our own accountability in doing so. If we misread a work, who is responsible, accountable for that misreading? Now, go read something. <laughs> 